0: Amen. Have a seat. Well, good morning. good morning. All right. Well, hey, if you don't know me, my name is JT. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful everybody's here today. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We are going to cover a whole verse today. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait to get to it. Um, hey, is anybody excited to hear about um, Julie and Lydia's trip to Africa? Yeah, me too. So come back next week and you get to hear it. Um, Julia's back with the kids today. Otherwise, they'd be, I'd, I was going to have them do it today, but she's back with the kids. So come back tomorrow, I think, or come back next week. Next week is going to be an awesome week. This week is and is going to be an awesome week. But next week, um, we want to hear what happened in Africa. We're going to do communion together. And um, I think, I don't want to like overstate anything, but um, we're going to be preaching a sermon that I think is going to be help like redefine some of our thought processes about how we see God and who we are in him. Um, That's a bold statement, but it's uh, a process that I've been going through the last few months, and it's been um, transformative for me. It's been transformative for my faith, and so I can't wait to get into it next week. But I also can't wait to get into what we've got this week. So if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, um, we've been in our new book series on the letter of Philippians. We call it a letter because it was written to the church in Philippi by the Apostle Paul. And we're calling the series Divine Humility as a representation of Christ's divine humility that he has shown us. And we've talked about that a lot so far in this series. And, and we're approaching this book a little bit differently. And so if you haven't been here the last few weeks and you've been at Freshwater for a while, you know with the book, our last two big series, the book of Exodus and the book of John, we went through these larger swaths of Scripture, right? We'd, sometimes in, in Exodus, we'd cover a whole chapter. In John, we'd cover 10, 15 verses sometimes, right? Bigger swaths of Scripture. And a lot of times, that's a great way to do it, right? You can kind of see a bigger picture. You can see it in context. You kind of see a thought as a whole. And that's a, a, that's a great way to do things. On the flip side, as you've probably seen in Philippians so far, there is tremendous value in going very slowly, right? Just taking your your time to ask yourself, do I really understand what this phrase means? So often, I I, I use the example, so often we treat the Bible like it's a mystery novel, like maybe not the whole Bible because it's 66 books and it's, that's a hard thing to read through in one go, right? But we treat books of the Bible almost like a mystery novel, like we got to get to the end. I've started this, let me get to the end of this thing so I can move on to the next thing. And And man, listen, it's really good to sit down in one go and read the book of Philippians. Please do that as we go through the series. See it as a whole, right? That's a good thing. But it's not a mystery novel, Right? This is the the Word of God. We want to to treat it like it is the Word of God, because this book is ultimately not something to accomplish. This is something to help us understand the glory of God, like who God is and why He's worthy of worship. You know what the, you know what else the Bible is? The Bible is a book that's teaching you about how to have a relationship with that God, with this sovereign, almighty, glorious God. And God, how that relationship happens is informed through his word. And so sometimes we got to just slow down and before we move on be like, do I un- do I really understand what that word means before I move past it? Do I really understand what that phrase means? I usually just kind of move on past it, but what does it really mean? Because I guarantee the way that Paul writes and the way the Holy Spirit inspires, everything means something and it builds it builds as it goes so that we can it can really sink down into into us. So This is the approach we're going to be taking with Philippians. We're going to slow way down. We're not going to rush. And we're going to ask ourselves, am I really grasping this word, this phrase, this verse before we move on? And so I just want to say, I'm not going to keep saying this every sermon, but I just want us to know from the start, if you thought, well, we were in John for 65 weeks because that's how long we were in John. And that was like 16 chapters or whatever, 20 whatever. I can't even remember now. Is it 16? We were in it for so long. 22? Whatever. <laughs> 21? Thanks, man. Um, we're in four chapters? No, we're going to slow through this. We're going to be in this book for a long time. We're going to be in this book for a long time before we move on from it because we want to really grasp it. So here's where we've been. A, a couple of weeks ago, we asked, why do Paul and Timothy refer to themselves as servants of Christ at the very beginning of this book? And we said that that word, servant, really translates as slave in the Greek. It can mean either one. And so we looked at that word and why, why Paul normally, normally introduces himself as an apostle of Christ, but in this book in particular, he doesn't introduce himself the way he does in virtually every book. He introduces himself as a servant, as a slave of Christ. One of those times we got, like, you see, that's a perfect example. I get to stop and be like, wait, why? What is, what is a slave of Christ? What is a servant of Christ? Why does Paul do this? And, and am I that? Am I a servant of Christ? If Paul says it, it must be important. Am I that? And so that's what we talked about week two of this series. And then last week, Tony did a great job of looking at the second half of verse one, verse one and really looked at the word saint. How many times in churches... Have you heard people refer to them? well, hey, I'm just a sinner, but Christ loves me. And the reality is, Scripture never or virtually never, right? The intention is never refers to people who have been saved as sinner. That is your former life. You are a saint. It seems like, oh, not all, so many of the conversations I have with people who are struggling, it comes back down to them just not really understanding and believing and walking in their, their identity in Christ. Seems like it's such a simple thing to understand. And it plays out in such profound ways in people's lives, in people's hearts, and people's minds. They see themselves as other than how Christ sees them, and it affects every aspect of their lives. And so last week we really talked about our identity as saints. Listen, that word translates literally as holy ones. Christ is referred to that, that same Greek word, holy one. We're referred to as God's holy ones. What if we saw ourselves as not some sinner that Christ puts up with, that God puts up with, but as a saint, a holy one who's a child of God. And that brings us to this week. Like I said before, we're, this week we're going to get crazy. We're going to cover a whole verse. It's going to be madness. And two weeks from now, not next week, but the week after that, we're going to cover three verses. You're not going to be able to know what to do with yourself. But um, like the last two weeks, really this is going to come down um, to really just a couple words. Because here's, what, here's what, what's going to happen. At first we're going to read... Verse 2, and you're going to think, well, that, that's just a greeting. Like This is how Paul greets, if you look through the other, um, the other books of, or the letters that Paul wrote, it just sounds like a, like a greeting. And listen, it is a greeting. It is the standard way that Paul introduces his book. The words, you, words used in verse 2 are how Paul introduces virtually every letter. But hear me, Paul's intentions for using these words, his intentions for using this introduction is not simple, and it's not basic. They aren't words that we're just meant to skip over and move on from. That's what we always do. That's what I've always done. No, these words have some of the deepest truths of our faith. It's rock. It is foundation. Words that not only have deep theological truths, but are really a foundation for, for us to be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read Philippians 2.2, 2, and then we're going to kind of jump in it together. I said Philippians two two. I mean one 2 do Don't get ahead of yourself. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 2 says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One more time. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I mentioned before, most of my life I have just skipped these, basically these first two verses as a whole in this letter and other letters like it in the New Testament. Because again, it's just a greeting, right? Like I had a conversation with someone just the other, uh, the other day, and they were basically like, why, why are you going to spend so much time here? It's just the greeting. Church, there is a reason Paul chose to, to talk about the grace and the peace from, from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in virtually all of his letters. He's not doing it just as a simple greeting. He always starts it this way because this is the first thing he wants them to hear. This is really the whole thing that his letters are built upon. Like he didn't just randomly pick these words. They are important. He wants to remind all of us, all the churches right from the start about the grace and the peace we have from the Father and the Son. So we better make sure we understand why. Why? One theologian that I read said that these two words, grace and peace, are in essence a short summation of Paul's entire theology. Does that sound like an over exaggeration? Like, in essence, they sum up Paul's Holy Spirit inspired theology. So, let's dive into these two words and find out. So, here's what we're going to do we're going to talk about the two realities of these two words. Because the, both of these words, similarly, kind of have two realities to them. One reality is an objective truth. And what I mean by that, it's just true. It's been done. It's been accomplished. We can point to it at all times, no matter what, and just say, that is true right now and always. And then both are going to have a subjective truth. And when I say subjective, don't think opinion. Like, it's still just as true, but subjective can, can mean how you feel about it at a particular time. And so these, these words also have a, a, a side of them that are about how we feel them or how we experience them. Does that make sense? So again, when I say subjective, don't think opinion. Think about how we interact with these words, how we interact with these things, how we feel and how we experience them. And that's, that's intentional. God meant for these words to mean both of those things. These words matter a lot. And so what, what better way to understand them completely is to dive into Scripture and let Scripture interpret it for us, right? You want to understand what something's saying in Scripture? Don't ask for people's opinions. See if anywhere else in Scripture it speaks to it. And even better than that, Today, we're going to mostly spend time in Paul's letters to help let him explain to us what he means when he says grace and peace. So let's get started and see if we can fully understand these two words in their fullness. The word grace in the Greek, again, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. The the word for grace is used 154 times in the New Testament. and 123 of those, it's just translated simply as grace grace. Now, the other 21 times, I think it's interesting, is translated as thankfulness, as a gift, or as favor, as in favor from God. That makes sense, doesn't it? See how those, all those things are connected? Paul uses this word grace far more than any other New Testament writer. Listen, far more Two-thirds of the uses are used by Paul. Paul wrote, I know we say Paul wrote half the books in the New New Testament, which he did. But when it comes to total word word volume, because some of his books are shorter, he wrote 24% of the total volume of the New Testament. Yet he uses this word two-thirds of the time when it gets used in the New Testament. That's why some people call the Apostle Paul the Apostle of Grace. The Apostle of Grace, because he talks about this constantly. So, since it's that important, let's make sure we define it, make sure we're on the same page before we move on. So, here, biblically, here's what grace is grace is God's favor or gift towards the unworthy. God's favor or gift towards the unworthy. If you want to get a little more specific, we could say it this way it's God's undeserved favor to sinners through the free gift of salvation, right? His undeserved undeserved favor to sinners through the free gift of salvation. So here's what grace is. Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve like forgiveness, like salvation, like his patience. Now, just so you can see the differences, right? We're talking about grace today, but just quickly, m- mercy is kind of the mirror of that, right? Mercy is God not giving us something we do deserve. See the difference? Mercy is Him giving us something we don't deserve, forgiveness. Mercy is God not giving us something we do deserve, like wrath and punishment for our sin. We'll talk about that in a second. So I just wanted you to see the difference. They're mirrors of each other. They're very similar, but they play out, and they're very both important to us. But today we're talking about grace. But like I said, let's let Scripture tell us what grace is. I give you a definition, but let's let Scripture do it, specifically Paul. So let's go to another letter he wrote to the church in Ephesus. So just go left in your Bibles, not very far at all, just probably a few pages for you to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4, but in the first three verses, it basically just says, because of, before you know Jesus, because, because of your sin, it's hopeless. You have no hope. You are dead in your sins. You're following Satan. You're following the world. The world. This is a familiar passage We read familiar passages because I want them to become life verses for you. So this is one of the most important passages in Scripture to understanding what grace truly is. So Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, we're sinners and we're lost and there's no hope, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, made us alive together with Christ. How did he do that? By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable. Coming ages meaning all the way into heaven, all the way through eternity, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. I love that line. As in, we're going to be in heaven and God's, the riches of God's grace is still going to overwhelm us forever. His kindness is going to overwhelm us forever his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so that that last verse verse 10 it almost seems out of place he's talking about grace 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 Oh, and yeah, you were created for good works. I'm going to show you in a minute that that fits perfectly right there. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's what grace is. That's that's what God has done for us. This is the objective truth about grace. We were lost to our sin, but because of grace, because of God's unmerited favor and his free, unearned gift of grace, we are saved. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We just simply accepted the gift through faith. That's it. That was our only part. As Romans 11 says, if grace were based on works, it wouldn't be grace. Now, if you've been coming to Freshwater for any amount of time, you know that truth. We've talked about that truth. So we're not going to spend any more time defining it. But I do want you to think about a couple of things before we move on from it. Here's the first one. First is that grace is not just something that God gives. Grace is who he is. Did you hear that? It's not just something that God gives to us. It's who he is. Why does that matter? It matters this. Listen to this. I want this to sink into your soul if you have a hard time with self-condemnation, that you don't think you're good enough, that you have a hard time believing that you could be loved. Listen, it is God's desire. It is God's deepest desire to treat you better than you deserve. He doesn't put up with you. It's his desire to love you and give you more than you deserve. It's his will to give you something that you could never earn despite the cost of that being higher than we could ever possibly imagine. I mean, it took his own son on the cross to give this to you. That's how much he thinks you're worth. That's how much he wants to shower you with this immeasurable, ununderstandable grace that will still be thinking about and overwhelmed by the kindness and grace of God all the way to an eternity, all the way through eternity. He thinks you are worth that. Because that's who God is. Grace is who God is. That's the God that we worship. And so it comes down to what if we, we actually, and what if we, what if we just totally believed in that objective truth? Not just in our heads, but with our lives. We thought about it, we concentrated on it, we prayed over it, we talked about it, and we just really believed it. Because for some of us in particular, what if you saw the way that God treated you? What if you saw the way, uh, how, what God thought you were worth, and it not only transformed the way that you treated other people, but it, it transformed the way you treated yourself? It just transformed the way you treated yourself. Because here's the, here's the thing. Some, here's just the reality. Some of you are just, if you're honest, maybe maybe not outwardly, maybe it's just in your heart. But you're just really hard on others. Maybe it's because they don't respond in the way that you think they should. Maybe they don't respond in, in as mature of a way that you think they should. Maybe it's because of their mistakes or maybe because they said something dumb what, or what you think is dumb or rude or mean or maybe because they react to something that doesn't really align with what, what you think or maybe you, even th- you don't even think that their response is godly. But what if we didn't see people in light of what they deserved? I want you to think about that a second. What if we didn't treat and think and react to people based on what they deserved or or see them through the lens of their faults or their weaknesses? Or what if we didn't see people as a problem? That our people were a problem to solve, but as God sees them, people loved, people with potential, people that I, people that I could sacrifice for so that they might grow into the image of Jesus Christ. Not so concerned with what they deserve or what they have earned. But by extending the free gift of grace through love, we saw them for all that they could be in Christ. Listen, does that mean that we don't address things that need to be addressed? Of course not. Does, Does God call us out in our weaknesses, in our sins, and call us away from those things? Yes, but in—listen, His immeasurable grace means He does it in kindness and gentleness and love. God wants the most for us. He wants the best. He wants the fullness of Christ in us. That's what He wants. What if we approach people that way? And so when we—when they did mess up, when they did screw up, when they deserve our wrath or anger or whatever else, we thought about the grace that Jesus Christ has shown us and thought, man, I am a person of grace. That's who I need to be, a person of grace. And that's how we approached that doesn't mean you just let things go. That means you go, you go to that person to reconcile in courage, but with patience and kindness and gentleness, assuming the best, understanding with compassion so that they might be all that they could be in Christ and maybe they could help you be all that you could be in Christ. Listen, this is going to be a major theme to the book of Philippians. How within the church body in particular, we can be people of grace that build each other up in love. What if we were people of grace? And then, secondly, some of you aren't nearly as hard on others as you are on yourself. And internally, you just beat yourself up. You can't let go of your failures, of your lack, of your, and just longing to be something different than what you are or something more than what you are. Listen, it is a very good thing to see the places in your life where you are not walking in godliness, the places in your life when you are actively walking in sin, the places in your life where you know you need to grow and reflect the image of Christ. Yes, and see those things. Confess those things. Repent of those things. Talk about those things in community. Flee from your sin. Take your sin so seriously. It is rebellion against a holy and righteous God, and He wants so much more from that. It is rebellion against Him. Turn from it. Yes, amen. But... Some of you need to extend the grace that Christ has shown us to yourself. To be kind to yourself. To forgive yourself. To not be so focused on what you feel like you deserve. But look to the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Listen, and that that free gift that is meant to set you free from that condemnation, from other people's condemnation, and listen, your own self-condemnation, it's meant to set you free from those things. What if you could extend grace to yourself? Believe it or not, this is also going to be a theme we're going to find in Philippians 3. Paul's going to talk about this in Philippians 3 about forgetting what lies behind, meaning self-condemnation, sin, our lack, and move forward to what God has called us to. So really, that's the objective side of grace, that we have been saved by God's unmerited, undeserved favor as as the free gift through Jesus Christ. A truth that we can point to and say, that is done. That has been accomplished. It is over. I can stand on that truth at all times with absolute confidence, no matter what this life throws at me. But as I said before, there's a subjective side of grace that we sometimes don't think about as much. You know, people really debate who wrote the book of Hebrews. Who do you think wrote it? Don't shout it out. I'm not ready to start a controversy right now about who wrote about who wrote Hebrews. A lot of people think Paul wrote Hebrews. I heard someone say somebody else the other day, I'm like, really? I've never even heard that one. People have all all kinds of things. I think more than anyone else people think Paul wrote it. But really that's not the point. Hebrews gives us a great Passage, a great passage that helps us understand the, the objective one-time truth of grace, but also the ongoing, daily, more subde- subjective truth that intersects with ha- intersects with how we feel and what we experience from day to day. So Hebrews four, do we have that one, Denver? Hebrews four fifteen through sixteen says this: For we do not have a high priest that's Jesus Christ, our ultimate high priest, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's the objective truth, right? That we've already have this grace. We can come near to God because through God's unmerited favor, we our sins have been paid for. God sees us as holy, righteous saints. So we can come to his, his throne. We can come to his presence with absolute confidence because what Jesus Christ did for us. But that's not all. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and what? Find grace to help in the time of need. See, that, that's an active thing. It's a more subjective thing that we can find it when we need it. So grace isn't just something, this one-time thing of salvation. Yes and amen, it is that. But it's something we find in our time of need. So in, in this passage in particular, it's, tell, it's talking about our, 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 the help that we need in our time of temptation and sin. Everybody need, anybody in here need help with their temptation and sin? Yeah, we turn to the grace of Christ who, that is actively working in our lives, that we actively seek it out. And God wants to help you. He wants to shower you with his, the riches of his kindness and grace so that you might be able to make it through things like temptation and come out of your sin and walk in holiness. But it's not just that he wants to help us in our temptation and sin. 2 Corinthians 9, Denver, we got that one? 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. I love that word abound. So that having, listen, to the, the, like pay attention when it says something like this, all sufficiency in all things at all times. Is that not bold? It's a passage we just kind of read like, yeah. Like all of the things, all of the things that you need all of the time in every way. Why? So that you may abound in every good work. Doesn't that point back to Ephesians 2 at the end and 10? It talks about God's grace. And then like, He's saying God's given you all the grace that you need. Why? So that you can abound in the calling that he's placed on your life. You can abound in the work that he's given you to do. I love this word, abound. It's not just what we need. It's an overflow. It's an abundance. It's having more than you will ever need. That's what God, immeasurable grace, abounding grace. So grace is also this ongoing power of God through the Holy Spirit that he gives us, that he abounds in us to give us everything we need at all times. Can you think about that, word, that, that phrase for a minute? At all times, so that we may abound in the good works that he's called us to. And that's encouraging, church. You are not alone in the things that God Has called you to do sometimes easy things, sometimes difficult things. His grace is being poured out so that you have everything and more that you need at all times. So, again, the reason I call this a subjective truth is it's a truth that is experienced. It will be different for each of us and it'll be found at different times. This truth will sometimes feel near and this truth will sometimes feel far away. It'll sometimes encounter us in our weaknesses. And sometimes it'll counter us powerfully in our strength. But here's the reality. God promises us this grace when we struggle with sin, when we're suffering, when we feel weak, when we're struggling with fear and anxiety. When we're sharing the gospel, when we are loving the poor and the needy, when we are striving for holiness, when we are striving to live in harmony with each other, particularly in the church, when we are striving to live in the fruit of the Spirit that reflect the love and life and the joy of Jesus Christ, all the things, all things I just mentioned will be what we talked about in this letter. Think this is just a word? All of those things are going to be talked about in this letter, in Philippians, and they're all covered with the abounding grace of Jesus Christ that he wants to pour out so that you have all that you need through the power of the Holy Spirit to do all of the things he's calling us to do. And listen, four chapters, he calls us to a lot of things in the book of Philippians. This is a supremely Christ-centered and practical do these things kind of book. That's why we picked it. And there's grace sufficient for all of it, for all of it objectively we have been saved by grace through faith for you believer that is done and over but subjectively god is working in so many different ways showering you with grace every day every hour every minute if you could if you would only look for it believe in it and pursue it you have to pursue this grace that other grace you didn't pursue that other grace it was given to you as a gift you just said, yes, Lord, I'll receive that through faith. That's all you did. This one must be pursued. That is why it is totally, this is, that's why it is just totally appropriate for a Christian to respond with, by his grace. Have you ever heard like a real christian person say that? Well, by his grace. Start saying it, because that's just the truth, right? That like christian things, you're like, you roll your eyes at. This one's awesome. By his grace, every day, every hour, every minute, God wants to shower you with abounding grace, but you gotta seek for it. You got to seek it. You got to pray for it. You got to s- study it, see it in God's Word. You got to talk about it. It doesn't just show up. This grace. That's why I called it subjective. I could have used a different word. But that's why I called it subjective. We seek this grace so that it might abound in our lives. It's already there, but we seek it out. It draws us near to God, and He showers us. Whew. this truth of God's abounding help and faithfulness runs all through. Philippians. Again, church, this is not a simple greeting. This is how Paul is laying the foundation of everything we're going to talk about after this. So that's grace. But if you remember, there's a second word. If you thought this sermon was done, we still got part two. That won't take quite as long. It won't take quite as long. All right. So he refers to peace. Peace, like I said before, is also objective and subjective. Now, I'm not going to spend quite as much time on peace because we talked about peace a lot in the Gospel of John, if you were with us, but this is a really important truth. It's one of our most hopeful truths. The peace of God is one of our most hopeful truths, so we're going to give it its due. All right? We're going to give it its due. We're not going to rush through it, but we're not going to spend as much time. So what's the objective truth of peace? The reality we can point to and say, that is accomplished. Well, to understand that, church, as I've said previously, if you've been to Freshwater, I've said that before we know Christ, we're at war with God. Has that ever sounded like a little bit dramatic to you? Like we're at war with God? Just in case it does, then we got Psalm 70, Psalm 7 over there. Yeah, Um, listen to this one. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Yikes. That's pretty clear how God sees sin, isn't it? That's terrifying, right? If you're not a believer, be terrified. That's a terrifying thing to come under the wrath of God. In the New Testament, just we can see in the New Testament from Paul, Romans 2, 8 through 11 says this. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being that does, who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. That just means everybody. Everybody. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And Romans makes very clear that no one does good, right? Outside of Jesus Christ, in Christ. That is where our good comes from. Is that how, that's how we do, we do good. So he's talking about Christ there. Peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality, meaning this is true for every person everywhere. doesn't matter. So without Christ, without a Savior to pay for our sins like he did on the cross, we are at war with God. But in Christ, everything changes. It's like terrifying, right? That's terrifying to everything changing in Christ. So if you had your Bibles open, flip them back open. To This time we're going to be in Ephesians 2 again. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 again. We're going to be down in verse 13 this time. And this just lays out. I, I think this might be one of the most beautiful explanations of the peace we have with God anywhere in the Bible. Anyway, I love it. So Ephesians two 13, We're going to read through verse 19. Ephesians 2, 13 says this but now in Christ Jesus you who were far off meaning sinners meaning lost to their sin have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. So what that means is that wall that existed between us and God, that wall of hostility, that hostility between us and God, Jesus tore it down. There is no more hostility. That hostility that came because God gave us his law and we never could live up to that law. We never followed that law. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and he is our peace. So he tore down all the hostility that was there. Keep going, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, his new covenant people, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Do you remember in John when Jesus said, um, I am your peace and I give you my peace I am your peace. That's what this is talking about, verse 18. For through him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the, what's that word? Saints and members of the household of God. And members of the household of God. The wrath, the hostility, the fury with God has been like not just appeased, it has been undone by Christ. It's undone. It's undone. So now we now have peace with God forevermore. Forever we have peace with God through Christ. That is amazing. What if we lived in that all the time? Peace with God forever. That is the objective truth of peace. That that war is over and we are now the children of God beloved by God that have peace with God. That's the truth that we can point to and say that's accomplished, that's done. That we were enemies But now, by God's grace, we have peace forever. Amen. But there's also the subjective side of peace. A truth that, honestly, it points all the way back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament Greek, Old Testament Hebrew. And it goes back to the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. We've talked about shalom before, but if if you forget it, shalom means more than just the ending of hostility. It means wholeness. It means fullness. Shalom means completeness. Right? It, it means being in harmony and being content. So this is where the more subjective side of peace comes in, right? Do you feel in harmony and content? Do you feel whole and full all the time? Yeah. Like, this is something that we experience and we interact with on at different times. About this kind of peace and how we pursue this kind of peace, Romans 8 says this. We got that one? Romans 8. Romans 8, this should be familiar to you. Romans 8, 5 through 6 says this. For those who live according to the flesh, that means according to sin or the desires of this world, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the, capital S, Spirit, Holy Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Right, again, life verse. Memorize this verse. Have this verse in your heart all the time when you're chasing the things of this world to be reminded of how you actually have life and peace in your life, how you chase God and you find this thing. So whether, so we either have flesh, we live in the flesh, we set our minds on the things of flesh, which leads to death. And I think everybody in this room has felt that death creeping up in our hearts if we, as we've chased the wrong thing, or we set our minds on the things of the spirit, which leads to life and peace. Listen, in Romans 8, you know what Paul's trying to do? through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to tell you how to pursue, how to have, how we can live in this shalom, right, in this wholeness, in this fullness that comes with Christ. God does not want you to just get by. He wants you to have a wholeness and fullness to set your minds on the things of the spirit. Paul will go on to say in Romans 12, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, transformed in the image of Christ. He went, and how are we transformed? Renewing our minds, which renews our hearts. This is not a passive thing. We have, the, we have peace with God forever in Jesus Christ if we're saved. Yes and amen. But having this daily wholeness, fullness is not a passive thing. It's not like God waves his magic wand and he goes, peace. It's not like we sit there, we just sit there and be like, God, why don't I feel this peace? God, I thought you were promising peace. We pursue this peace. I got, listen, there's so many of us in this room, I, I, I guarantee that have not felt peace like this and wonder why God doesn't give us peace like this and we've never really truly pursued peace like this. Now some of you have and it's still so hard to find. And listen, I sympathize with that. It it is difficult to find this at times in our lives, sometimes for long stretches. And listen, I love you and that's hard and there's grace in that. And the Lord still loves you and sometimes it just feels so far away. But don't ever think that this is some like magical wand that we can conjure. We pursue the peace of the Lord, this wholeness, this shalom. Do you know in Scripture, God gives us things like Romans 8 pretty often. Don't seek things of the flesh, seek, seek things of the Spirit and you'll have life and peace. I mean, really what that means is seek God and godly things and the fruit of the Spirit and community and all the things that God's telling you to pursue. Pursue those things and set your mind on those things. But he doesn't typically give us a how-to guide, does he? With peace, he almost does. I'm not saying he does, but he almost does. One of the best passages, again, this is my opinion, one of the best passages in all of the Bible about how we pursue peace is found in the book of Philippians. Turn to Philippians 4. Now, as you might guess, we're going to spend a lot of time with this in like 94 weeks from now, right? But right now, I just, I can't get away from it. Like, grace and peace, everything's pointing to this book, right? Philippians 6 through 7. Let's read it together. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious. You could put worry here. You could put f- afraid here. You could put discontent here. Do not be anxious about, what's that word, church? Anything. Listen, look at, can you look at me real quick? Do not believe the lie from the enemy who hates you that you are an anxious person. Do not believe the lie from your enemy that you're a a person who just worries all of the time. We all have anxiety at times. We all worry at times. And I'm not saying that's always sinful. Paul's talking about in Philippians how he's anxious to hear from them and what's going on with them. Like he's like, oh, I want to hear from them, right? I'm not saying being anxious is all of a sudden, but listen, it's saying do not be anxious. So having some some anxiety is not a sin. What is God telling you? He's saying, I don't want you to be anxious. Not, how dare you be anxious? He's telling us how we can not be anxious and have something other than anxiety. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't want you to be anxious or worry or fear or discontent. Keep reading. Do not be anxious about anything. But here's the word, here's the other word that you've got to let sink into your heart or you're not going to experience this peace. But in, what's the word? Every thing everything that's a big word in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication means pleading. Pleading in everything. Plead. Entreat God. With thanksgiving, how often are you pleading with God in prayer and just thanking him for all he's done, for all he is, for all you have, right? This is what this is talking about. This is almost a guide to what he's talking about here. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses, there it is again, all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's about as close to a how-to guide in scripture as you're gonna get. You want peace? God just told you how to pursue it through a relationship with him. This is not how dare you not have peace. God wants you, this is God saying, he's telling us, he wants us to have a, a peace so rich, so full, it surpasses anything that we could understand. Almost surpassing logic, we have a logical faith church, but this is almost past logic. You know what it reminds me of? It's what we just talked about with grace. What is God? What kind of grace does God want you to have? Abounding grace, more than you can understand, more than you ever need. The kind of grace that in heaven we're going to be like. What? God's that good? What? This is the kind of peace He's talking about. Supernatural peace that will guard your hearts and your minds. For how many of you, church, is your mind a minefield waiting for the next bomb to go off? Like, listen, your Savior wants to guard you in that. Like, this is how much he loves you. He's not yelling at you, don't be anxious. He's like, listen, I'm bigger than your anxiousness. I love you more than, than, than that anxiousness has control over you. I, I'm showing you the way to find me. I'm showing you the way to pursue me in this. Like, praise God that we have a God that understands, that is sympathetic, that sees our worry and our fear and our anxiousness and our content, discontent and wants to set us free. Praise God that's who he is. That's just who he is. He wants us to feel and live in freedom and live not only in freedom but in wholeness and the hope of this surpassing peace. What a God we serve. But here's the thing. It's not just the peace that we're to pursue in our own lives. Listen, this is one of those things. Does that sound like a magical, boom, peace? No. God's showing us how we pursue this peace. Peace. But it's not just in our lives. Here's another way we pursue peace practically. Um, We got Ephesians 4 over there, Denver. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, this is Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. He's writing from prison again to another church. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And how do we maintain that unity in the Spirit? In the bond of what? Peace. That's how this happens. We know that through Christ, through the free gift of grace that leads to our salvation, we have been given peace with God forever. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of God's great love, as we see in Philippians 2, because of God's great humility and gentleness and lowliness and patience and love. That's how he made peace with us. That's how God made peace with us. Now we're supposed to pursue and give the same thing to others. Pursue it and give it to others. To walk in a way that is worthy of one who is called saint and who is called a servant of Christ. We are to walk in humility and gentleness and patience and love. Why? So that we all might be Bonded together in this beautiful peace that God purchased for us through His Son Jesus Christ. It's what bonds us together, church. And you know what that means that we don't do? Scripture talks about this too: not grumbling at each other, not grumbling about each other, not not gossiping about each other. Not listen. This is hard. I, I listen. This church is full of people who sin and fail. Me included. Is it not? Do we not all fall short? Do we not all have weaknesses? Do we not all fail? Right? But you know what's what, what Scripture try, trying to tell us that we don't do? Not, not to grumble, don't gossip, don't complain. Don't hold each other's weaknesses against each other. But by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, striving for and in peace, for harmony and wholeness with each other, just as Christ has done, we are held together in the bond of peace. As Romans twelve eighteen says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Can, can you just for a second think of the word all? And then think of every person in the church that you absolutely adore and the people in the church that sometimes drive you a little bit crazy. We can be honest at Freshwater, right? There's people in this room you'd never be friends with outside of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that, because how else are we going to learn real patience and gentleness and kindness and grace and mercy and build peace? We are to live peaceably with all. With all. So peace isn't just something that we have or given, or even something we strive to walk in daily just for ourselves by having our mindset on the Spirit, but it's something that we give and we extend to others so that that peace, that harmony might bond us together in Christ. As I've said like five times already, once again, you're going to see that this unity, this harmony, this peace in the community of God will be a major, major, major theme in the book of Philippians. And it has nothing to do with us just being like, well, I guess I got to get over it. Mm -mm. It means that in Christ, you have the courage to go to your brother and sister To be bonded together in that peace and in gentleness and love and humility and kindness and grace and truth work so that you both can grow and you both can be bonded together in the bonds of peace. And sometimes that's calling out sin and sometimes that's letting people call out your sin. But it's being bonded together. This is a major thing in this book. Church, these two massive theological words play out in every book in the New Testament but again they will be particularly they will particularly inform the book of philippians so if you take these two things to heart if you understand that all that God has done for you so that you could have grace and peace, and then out of that, strive to live in that re- the reality of that grace and peace. And then finally, if we can be a people that gives our lives to extend that same grace and peace, in particular to our brothers and sisters in Christ, well then by the power of the, the Holy Spirit, this, this little four chapter book of Philippians will come alive for you. It will come alive for you. It will come alive in such a supernatural way that, listen, I have no problem boldly saying it'll change your life. The, the content in here through the power of the Holy Spirit changes lives. And not only that, it will provide an avenue for you to be a part of changing other people's lives for the glory of God and for the name of Jesus Christ. It just is. It just will. I'm about to sing a song. It's going to say this grace and peace. Oh, how can this be? The matchless king of all paid the blood price for me. Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring! Exclamation point. The vilest sinner's heart can be cleansed, can be free. And the grace and peace of Jesus Christ, he wants you to be free through the cross. What if we didn't just sing that? But what if we believed it so deeply? It transformed how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see each other. God's telling you how you can be transformed and pursue these things. So it just comes down to the fact that, like, will you? Will you pursue it? Will you strive for it? Because it's already there waiting for you. And God wants you to have this grace and peace. I'll close with maybe the best verses I could find to sum up what Paul really means when he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from Romans 5. It's Romans 5, 1 through 2. The first half of Romans 5 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, It says this, you got it over there? Romans 5, 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask you to do a work today. God, I pray that you would help us see. God, you would help us see your glory, your goodness, your majesty, your holiness, your love, your grace, your peace. God, I know there's so many of us in this room that don't experience this on a daily basis, but yet you want us to. You're you're promising it to us. These are not good recommendations. You're making promises to us. So God, I pray you'd help us as a church, not just to stand, yes and amen, stand on the foundational truth of grace and peace, what you have done in your sovereign will, what you have accomplished, what is over, what is done, the grace and peace that comes through you. But God, as a community, we would learn to build each other up in the truth that grace is abounding for us. In all circumstances, that grace is there to abound in us, Holy Spirit, that you are with us in all things. So we know that we are never alone. We, never, we are never too weak to accomplish the things that you've called us to, to do, to be, and to grow in. Never. God, help us to believe as a community to grow in this, God, that, that we can have a peace that surpasses understanding, a wholeness, a fullness, a completeness in you that leads to our joy. For that's what you want so clearly in your word. It describes what you want for us. Joy, Jesus, you say you want to give us your joy so our joy may be full. It's found in this grace and this peace. So God, as a community, help us to see, to hear, to grow. There's so many things holding people back, worry and fear and anxiety and lust and greed and and discontent and whatever else is getting in the way. God, I pray that you could fill us so full of your spirit, so full of your grace and peace. There's no room left in our hearts and minds for those things that, that enslave us, but only the freedom that's found in you. God, I know I can't preach a sermon good enough to draw us into that. So God, I just pray, I beg, help do your work in our minds and our hearts to set us free so that we might move forward in these things. God, we love you. Oh, what a reflection of your goodness today. I pray that we could believe it in the deepest parts of our souls, how loved we are and how we can love others in the same way. Jesus, help us to be more like you every single day. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, if you need prayer, I'll be back in the corner. I'll probably be joined by other people. If If you need any prayer at all, I would love to pray with you. Otherwise, why don't you stand and let's worship God in song. Let's pray. Pretty-